The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of MedPEP or Physician Health Services. The advice given to Marie Curious has been individualized and may not apply to the listener. While Marie Curious is a real person describing both real and hypothetical events and situations, she is using a pseudonym for this series. Welcome back to MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program. I'm Dr. Les Schwab, the host of MedPEP. I'm a practicing internist, an experienced medical leader, and a trained professional coach. And in that capacity, I help medical leaders, physicians, and other healthcare professionals develop strategies and plans for dealing with today's incredibly demanding and stressful and complex practice environment. I'm here to serve as the guide for Dr. Marie Curious, an early career primary care internist with a large and demanding practice here in Massachusetts. Marie is determined not only to survive, but to thrive at a time when professional burnout is rampant throughout the healthcare system. In each of these MedPEP episodes, I facilitate a conversation between Marie and an expert with knowledge and skills to help her optimize and humanize her experience practicing medicine. Today's expert is Dr. Steve Edelman, who will be speaking to us about seeking relief in the wrong places. But before we begin, I'd like to ask Marie, how are you? Thank you, Les. Always glad to be back. I'm doing well. Very good. And anything notable to report from your experience since we last met? Uh, thinking about our last conversation with Danielle Ofri, it's been useful to keep in mind letting the patients talk for the first few minutes. And it does feel a lot longer than one would think, but I'm trying to mine that time and get the information I need and balance that. So it's a work in progress. Do you think it's changed what you're getting out of the interviews? I'll have to report back. Okay, I'll, I'll look, look forward to but that. But I have faith that truly it, it does give a chance for the patient to reveal what they're really concerned about. So I think it can only be helpful. I agree, and I think it just may take time to extract the extra learning and still manage the time effectively. That's right. Well, I'm very glad to be back with you and very interested to listen in on your conversation with Dr. Edelman. Dr. Edelman, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do for the lot of us physicians? Sure. Uh, I am the director of a state physician health program. The program here in Massachusetts is called Physician Health Services. We're a destination for physicians who have something going on or may have something going on in terms of their physical health, their emotional health, their use of psychoactive substances, something going on that either is getting in the way or could be getting in the way of their ability to practice. So doctors come to us sometimes on their own, about a third of the time they come on their own, mm -hmm. and about two thirds of the time someone who's concerned that something's going on with this physician that might not be good for him or good for his or her patients sends the doctor to us at PHS for a look-see. When you say that people are sent to you, that almost sounds like reporting to the principal's office. Uh, fair point. Physicians uh, are somewhat notorious for not getting help on our own, on our own terms. We tend to think of ourselves as very effective able to solve problems, including our own. 
And some physicians, many physicians, uh, when we have problems, try to solve them ourselves mm -hmm. to our own detriment. So when push comes to shove and the physician's behavior or actions are such that people are beginning to wonder whether or not uh, mistakes will be made, mm -hmm. that's when someone might say, it might be a good idea for you to give PHS a call. I see. And is that process anonymous? How this usually works is a concerned leader, colleague, or treating physician will give us a call. Often they won't mention the physician's name mm -hmm. at first. They'll ask us, what do we do? Right. How does it work? Is it safe? Is it anonymous? We explain to them that we're a peer review program. That's a program that's extremely private and confidential. We'll explain to them that once the physician comes to us, we work for the physician. Mm. We also explain to them that nothing leaves us in writing or on the phone for that matter without the physician's express written consent. Mm -hmm. So I think of us a little bit like Switzerland. We're a safe haven <laughs> for doctors who have something going on. Nobody's quite sure what to do with it or where to go with it. And we're a starting point for the doctor getting the help that he or she might need. That sounds really great because like you implied, I think physicians are often thought to be or viewed by society to be above the fray, so to speak, above reproach. But we're humans too. And I, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, when I counsel my patients day in and day out about a healthy lifestyle and exercise and eating, which we've covered yep. in this podcast series, that I'm not the most successful in the least. And so when it comes to using alcohol, marijuana, other drugs, are doctors really different than everybody else? So that's a good question. Uh, I think we're both the same and different. We're the same in the sense that we are in, by no means immune to uh, being afflicted by one or another substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. In fact, we probably have alcohol problems to an extent that's a little bit greater than the general population, mm. maybe a percentage or a point or two more, maybe 11, 12% lifetime incidence as opposed to 10%. We also have access to mm -hmm. psychoactive substances. We have prescription pads. Some of us have samples in our offices. Uh, some of us carry around black bags in the hospital with very powerful drugs that are used to sedate people for surgery. So most professions that have access to addictive substances find that there's a greater than expected incidence of substance use disorders. And we certainly do see that in anesthesiologists, one medical specialty in particular. Mm. And so if a doctor is using these substances, whether it's prescription drugs or alcohol, which is legal, how do you advise physicians to minimize the potential risks? Well, I think there, there are two sides to that. There's a public health side. In other words, uh, how should physicians think about using legal substances? And mm -hmm. how should physicians think about using potentially addictive prescription medications when they're prescribed? Mm -hmm. Because people out there in society, including physicians, get into trouble with psychoactive substances. So are there some best personal practices to right. bear in mind that will keep you out of trouble. 
Would you like me to go into that side of it? Okay. So I might be lecturing to the medical students and saying, here's what you should consider as right. you go forward into your professional lives. We'll start with alcohol. Mm -hmm. And we'll say, if you've ever had a problem with alcohol, just, just steer clear of it because alcohol gets doctors in trouble more than any other mm. substance or activity. But let's say you've never had a drinking problem. Is there a way to minimize risk? Mm -hmm. I've created a term that I call uh, clean margin drinking. Okay. Is there a safe way for us to drink as physicians? And I would say you should never mix alcohol with being on duty at all. Okay. And in this era where people are almost always available, that's a little bit tricky. Right. Small towns, hospitals that might call, the doctors at a party, etc. So you have to be very, very careful in those situations. So if you're on duty, you shouldn't be drinking at all. That's number one. But let's say you're not on duty, you're unreachable, someone else is covering the practice. How should you drink? If it's a work night, I would drink very, very, very sparingly, if at all. Hmm. There's evidence that drinking in the evening sometimes may have an impact the next day. So if you're going to drink, I would say a single drink and be done your drinking by 8 p.m., at least 12 hours before you report for duty. That's as far as drinking. Don't drink every day. It's safest for you to be drinking on weekends only when you're not on duty, when you're not going to be reporting to work at all. And then I think the quantity that you ingest should be very limited. Let's talk about young people, not over the age of 65. A single standard drink at a sitting for a woman and not more than two at a sitting for a man. A standard drink being five or six ounces of wine, 12 ounces of beer, an ounce and a half of hard stuff. So a drink at a time for a woman, end of story, up to two drinks for a guy, end of story. And then don't get behind the wheel of a car if you've been drinking at all. So many physicians get into so much trouble hmm. with traffic stops, I cannot begin to tell you. Wow. Steve, that actually sounds like a pretty tall order. Uh, I'm just thinking back to my residency days. Yep. And, you know, after a, a long call, that this is back in the day when we did have 30-hour calls, but regardless, you know, you were post-call and a group of us would get together and go out and have a few drinks and relax and, and we would have to go back to work the next day. So all of us, I guess, violated those guidelines that you've put out. And that seems a little unfair. It's a public safety profession. Yes. And we see people getting in trouble all the time when they start to drink excessively. Granted, those guidelines are conservative. Right. And I put them out there as being the safest guidelines for physicians who care to drink and want to minimize the chances that anything will go south. And so how do you counsel physicians who say, well, look, I have a beer with dinner, but I don't get home till 8 p.m. as it is. Maybe I have a beer to relax at nine o'clock. I'm back at work at 6 a.m. because those are the hours that some physicians have to keep. But then what about the other physician who needs an Ambien to go to sleep or has a sleep disorder or, or something like that? Should, are they allowed to be taking those medicines? Do they have to take it before eight o'clock? So, so we're not the alcohol and psychoactive substance police. <laughs> we see doctors who get into trouble right. with alcohol and psychoactive substances. Fair. 
we see actually a fair number of people every year who maybe had a drink when they got home. Yeah. Maybe it was on the late side. And then maybe they took an Ambien. Uh-huh. In part, they might be taking an Ambien because, in fact, when you drink in the evening, that can disrupt your sleep. That's right. And then they seem a little funny in the morning. Uh-huh. And they show up at work and someone says, that doctor's nodding out. What's going on? Right. And that's how it starts. We are safety-sensitive professionals. We're like pilots in that sense. Right. And I think if we think of ourselves as pilots and think of some of the strictness around, the pilots have very clear rules. Yes. Don't drink within so many hours of the flight. I think doctors, especially those who awaken early and do very complex things early in the day, should be super careful. I've met many surgeons who will say, I don't drink at all. Right during the week. Right. And I think that's very, very safe. Should every surgeon adhere to that? I think if you want to minimize risk, it's a great personal practice to adopt. We don't police it. Steve, I think it's great that you're speaking to medical students about this. And for our listeners, I hope that that becomes a practice across the board, because that's not something that even came across our radar in medical school or even residency. Nobody talked about it. And now that I'm thinking about it, you know, there's situations that have come up before that I'd love to run by you to see what physicians should do in in those circumstances. I'd love it. So one of them is um, this happened to a colleague of mine who sees a psychotherapist and um, the colleague calls me because she knows I'm a doctor and she says, look, I went to see my therapist and the therapist just seemed off. She was dozing off during the session. She was slurring her words and um, I was very, very uncomfortable. What should I do? Okay. What would you advise, Steve? So was the therapist a psychiatrist, a physician? Uh, I think it was a licensed social worker. Okay. So the programs vary from state to state. Okay. Here in Massachusetts, our scope includes physicians only. Okay. So I'm going to answer the question as if this were a physician in Massachusetts. Sure. Although in some states, the same program that helps the physicians also helps social workers, but that's not the case here in Massachusetts. Let's assume that this was a physician. Sure. Because that's the world that I live in here at Physician Health Services in Massachusetts. Your colleague could give us a call. I would encourage you to have your colleague give us a call. Right. And your colleague was a she? Yes. So so she would call and she would talk to me or, or tell us, tell our staff, this is what happened. I was in a session with my psychiatrist. My psychiatrist was falling asleep on me and my psychiatrist was slurring her words. Yes. I don't, I don't know what to do. Right. So what I would say here in Massachusetts is you could refer your psychiatrist to PHS. I see. Do you mean refer as in the colleague would tell PHS, this is the psychiatrist's name, please talk to her, or that she would have to go approach the psychiatrist and say, I think you need help. It's a tricky situation. Definitely. It's a very tricky situation because there are mandated reporting laws here in Massachusetts where health professionals who are concerned about 
the behavior of other licensed health professionals are mandated by the medical board to do something about that situation. That is useful information to know. Okay, so that's known as mandated reporting. Also useful, would have been useful to learn that in medical school. It, it doesn't, <laughs> and it varies from state ah, to state, okay. so it's tricky. So okay. here in Massachusetts, the nurse patient of her psychiatrist could call us okay. and say, I'm concerned that my psychiatrist has a problem. What do I do? Okay. So we would walk her through some scenarios. She could encourage her psychiatrist to contact us mm -hmm. directly on her own. That's a little bit tricky because how does the nurse patient know that the psychiatrist is even following through and taking care of the problem at hand? Right. She doesn't. So we would probably talk about staying in touch to see how it goes. Okay. Okay. So the nurse could encourage her doctor to contact us and we would take it from there once the doctor was in touch with us. If the psychiatrist is working for some larger organization, right, like a multi-specialty practice, then I think the nurse patient has the option of raising a concern at the level of the organization. Mm -hmm. This was going on in a session. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm concerned that my doctor may have a problem. Mm -hmm. At that point, the nurse patient has really handed the problem over to the authority figure in the organization. Right. That's the way it works for doctors who work in practices and organizations, but a lot of psychiatrists work in a solo environment, so that's trickier. I see. So it sounds like this colleague of mine is a little bit strapped. I mean, it puts her in a difficult position with regards to her own provider. And then this um, psychiatrist doesn't really have oversight. It's always complicated. Yeah. The, the world we live in with uh, physicians and health challenges such as the one you described is very complicated. Not the least of which, part of the complication in this particular case is that your nurse colleague depends on this doctor. Exactly, who uh, is prescribing medication for her. Who is prescribing her. medication, which really begs the question, shouldn't something be done about this sooner rather than later? Because uh -huh. patients really may be at risk. I don't really want my doctor who's falling asleep and slurring her words writing my prescriptions, do I? Right. And so, Steve, it sounds like we do have to investigate some of the mandates yep. per state, for example, to do our due diligence, but also this thought about being a good Samaritan and just living by my consciousness. And one example that I had in mind that happened actually this past year, for me personally, I was in clinic and I was leading a rapid response for a patient who was in a supraventricular tachycardia, was becoming a little bit hemodynamically unstable and had to be sent to the hospital. So I have our clinic secretary call the ambulance, the ambulance staff arrive on site and you know I'm directing the staff and on the way out, a staff member comes to me and says, look, that ambulance driver smells like alcohol. They're already on the way out, Steve, yep. and this patient needs to get to the hospital. What should have I done? It's a really important question. You're trying to save someone's life 
and you're putting the patient in an ambulance where the driver may be driving under the influence. Right. All right. So if we think about the safety of the patient is really paramount, I think the recourse uh, in a situation after the fact is to share the concern with the ambulance company. Okay. Um, because they field concerns and they can connect the dots. Okay. Looking the other way may not end well. Right. It's a, it's a tougher situation at the moment yes. where the ambulance driver is about to leave with this patient with an acute medical problem. I think there are situations where it's obvious that person shouldn't get in the car. Right. All right. The same way an intoxicated physician should not be scrubbing and going into the OR. I think where people have biggest difficulty is where they're not sure what's going on. Right. And then it's a judgment call. When in doubt, err on the side of doing what's safe for the patient. And think to yourself, would I get in that ambulance and drive with that ambulance driver driving? The person mm. smelling the alcohol says, no way, then I think we got to do something. Mm -hmm. I'd like to interject another topic of intoxication while we have some time, which is marijuana. Mm. Uh, as it is becoming increasingly legal to obtain it, I imagine this also already and may present yet future challenges to physicians who want to use it. Where to begin? <laughs> Any way you like. <laughs> um, I think marijuana is in a very complicated place right now in our society. It's legalized in many states, but not all states. The federal government still is not in any way thinking towards legalization. It's still scheduled as a Schedule One substance. There's no medical research being done on marijuana with federal funds. But I think the issue for practicing physicians and licensed physicians is really very simple. It really has to do with the fact that currently the testing for marijuana is such that its long-term metabolite, THC, sticks around in your system for days and weeks and occasionally months after use. So a physician who uses marijuana has to consider the following. Somebody might decide for some reason that doctor seems off. It may have nothing to do with having used marijuana. It may have to do with having been up all night taking Ambien and cold meds. But if the doctor shows up and someone says, this doctor is off, he or she needs to be drug tested, they may test positive for THC that they brought into their system two, three, or four weeks earlier. The problem in this kind of a situation where public safety professionals test positive for substances that might impede their cognition is it gets very hard to prove a negative. How can you prove that that THC doesn't have anything to do with why you were off that day, why you didn't seem right? So since I see situations where doctors get in trouble for either seeming off or for having the wrong substances in their systems or for both, I would just say, 
the better part of valor, the way to protect your career and your license is not to put substances like marijuana with long-term, long-acting metabolites into your system. It's not a very popular view, but I think it's the safe and prudent thing to do for a licensed physician. So there is no clear margin practice for marijuana. Mm. There really isn't. I think if you're taking a one-year sabbatical, <laughs> and you're on a cruise, in the middle of the cruise, it might be okay. We have seen physicians stopped on one state border and arrested for possession of marijuana they had in their car from a state where it was legal and get into trouble <gasps> with that. Oh my goodness. Okay, we have seen physicians who celebrated a life event with a one-time use of marijuana only to be drug tested less than a month later because they took a new job, test positive for marijuana, and then uh, have some explaining to do. And sometimes the explaining leads to uh, all sorts of findings that need to be addressed, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I would just steer clear of it because I see the bad things that can happen when doctors put the wrong thing in their system. Mm. And Steve, I know as we are wrapping up with time, we've been talking about physicians using psychoactive substances, legal or otherwise, and how that might impact their career. But something you touched upon, which I think is interesting, is all of these things affect cognition. And that's what we really care about at the end of the day, which is patient safety, and how do we do the best job that we can. Do you deal with um, situations where physicians are reported because of natural medical conditions like Alzheimer's? that affect their cognition. So this is an opportunity for a, a brief infomercial. We've talked mm -hmm. a lot about psychoactive substances. In fact, at Physician Health Services, we accept referrals, either self-referrals or referrals from others for anything and everything that could get in the way. Mm. So that includes psychiatric problems mm -hmm. that might lead to a psychiatric leave of absence. Right. That includes uh, problematic behavior, like anger management challenges, mm. where doctors are not behaving well and interacting effectively. That includes stress and burnout, mm -hmm. which is very, very endemic these days. And then neurocognitive problems, including cognitive decline mm -hmm. for any reason, including doctors who have uh, central nervous system problems mm -hmm. that might affect cognition. Anything that might impact or impair the, the physician's ability to do the job is what we are happy to help out with. That sounds like a, a broad umbrella, and I'm glad that capturing all of these things that can affect a physician and not just focusing on drugs makes a lot of sense for the complicated life that we live in now. Indeed. So as a counterpoint to rather firm rules about using substances and still recognizing the things that are driving some physicians to want to use them, perhaps some of the other solutions we've been exploring here in MedPEP might reduce the stress and demand such that that becomes less necessary. Absolutely. When people are eating well, exercising, meditating, practicing mindfulness, practicing good work-life balance, excellent self-care, there's less of a need to indulge in psychoactive substance use that might get you out of your head 
but get in the way of your career at the same time. I want to thank Dr. Edelman for a very clear and hard look at the issue of troublesome ways physicians might seek relief through the use of psychoactive substances. It's been very clear that you are promoting a notion of the profession as one that is about public health and public safety and therefore necessary to take a very strict line to preserving function for the patients we serve, particularly promoting a very conservative line of restraint about the use of alcohol and a kind of absolute line about restraint in the use of marijuana because of its unintended consequences for all. I just want to thank you very much for your insights and I'm looking forward to our next session to listen to Dr. Mark Green who will be speaking to us about managing unrealistic expectations by embracing our powerlessness. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. It was great being with you guys today. If you have a question or a comment about today's program, email us at feedback at medpep.org or simply visit us at medpep.org. And now, here's a few words from MedPep's founder, Steve Edelman. This is Dr. Steve Edelman, creator of MedPep, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program, and director of PHS, Physician Health Services, a charitable subsidiary of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Our mission is to promote the well-being of health professionals. Many thanks to our seeker, Dr. Marie Curious, to our guide, Dr. Les Schwab, and to our wonderful group of guest experts. Hats off to project leader, Dr. J. Dev Dasgupta, audio producer, Douglas Stevens, guitardiologist, Dr. Susie Brown, and to the staff and board of PHS. Please visit and connect with us at medpep.org for CME info, faculty bios, and additional empowerment resources.